Welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast. In this episode, we partner with the Exponential Conference and host a five-part webinar titled Mobilizing Missional Disciples. This episode is titled Remission, Moving a Congregation of Members to a Community of Missionaries. We are so glad that you are joining us today. My name is Beth Wolf, um, and I am a pastor uh, outside of the Washington, D.C. area. And you're joining us for Mobilizing Missional Disciples. We are talking about um, remission, moving a congregation from members of a community to missionaries. And that is such a timely conversation that we're having. Um, in addition to being a pastor outside the D.C. area, I am a part of the teaching team with Forge America. Forge America is an organization that partners with the local church to mobilize the people of God to participate in the everyday mission of God. And you can find out more about that by going to forgeamerica.com. Um, I have John Rittner here with me today. He is a pastor outside, or actually like in the heart of Hollywood. It's not outside anywhere. It's right in the heart of Hollywood. He's an author of the book, um, Positively Irritating, which is a phenomenal book. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that and then plug it at the end and let you know where you can get it. But John, let's go ahead and just start this morning. Can you just share a little bit about yourself? Um, what have you been up to recently? Uh, all of those different pieces. We'd love to get to know you a bit. Yeah, absolutely, Beth. Thanks so much. It's great to be here and um, uh, love kind of love these conversations and, and love the exponential leaning into this stuff, especially and creating a, a great platform for this. Um, you know, I grew up a, a preacher's kid in a in a in the Northeast walked away from the church background and ended up joining fraternity house and uh eventually seven christian guys had moved in this fraternity house and basically had become kind of a missional community before that language was ever used uh, and we're living out the life of jesus in a space that really didn't seem to be interested in jesus and uh and i kind of met jesus through all that and so eventually felt the call to uh pastoral uh, ministry and uh, went to trinity in chicago and then spent 10 years um, working at a, a church of kind of that went from kind of 400 to about 3,000 back in Williamsburg, Virginia, and had every role on staff there, and eventually was kind of the executive pastor, number two guy, uh, and you know really got to be blessed, excited to see everything the kind of the the church leader in America um, was dreaming of at that time, which is you know growth up and to the right and more people and and more buildings, more sizes, more resources, and then just kind of had my own reckoning of like. I'm not sure actually that this is everything I want, and I'm not sure maybe it's what we even should be doing. Um, and the way we're doing it maybe is not as life-giving to me and to others as I thought. And so uh, my family and I decided to step back from that and go to Brussels, Belgium, and kind of engage with the post-Christian European, more secular culture, and, and kind of see how the church was adapting to what I began to think was gonna be a, a reality coming to America pretty soon. And so we, we went over there and experimented uh, in Brussels with uh, an organization called Communitas International and helped plant churches within the city there. We had a, a small uh, network of micro churches called The Well and then a nonprofit called Serve the City that we used as kind of our outward facing arm that allowed us to engage with the city in uh, acts of service and blessing. Uh, and then after three years there, felt the call to come back to America and start to apply what I had learned about kind of shifting an attractional you know, Sunday-centric, professional-led church into more of a seven-day people movement of God, where every disciple was feeling the call to make disciples in the ordinary spaces of life. And so uh, we took a, a job here in Hollywood, California, at a church called Ecclesia, 
that was in that same transition themselves, moving away from, you know, the big Sunday platform, the big theater, the big charismatic personality, the big experience, and trying to think more about how to be an outward facing community that was serving the tremendous needs of the, the city of Hollywood. And it was also making disciples in the entertainment industry of Hollywood, which tends to be a little more dispersed and scattered throughout Los Angeles. And so we've been here now six years uh, and are, are kind of slowly turning that ship and, and in that process of, of learning what sort of patterns and paradigms we might need uh, for this uh, new adventure ahead, the, this book emerged in my own life. And so it's been such a joy to be able to share it and to see how it's resonating with people who are uh, facing the same sort of challenges of, of post-Christianity and also just the, the declining um, you know, place of the church in culture, the marginalization of the church as a, a source of good news. And so how do we reimagine and reinvent ourselves knowing that Jesus himself is always good news in the world? That's awesome. And I love that phraseology that you used of the slow turning of the church because it's not quick and it's not fast. It is so super slow. Um, sometimes you can even miss it. So we're going to dive into all of that, of how that shift happened and how you talk about some of the paradigms that are needed in order to make that shift. But before we jump into that, I just would love if you would just reflect briefly on this past year. Um, I know that there's been a lot of unraveling in all of the churches, and perhaps you might have been a little bit more prepared for that because of your experience in Brussels and your time there and some of the post-Christian um, culture that you had. But as, as you've walked through the 2020 COVID and now 2021 um, COVID experience and through the long uh, overdue reckoning with with racial injustice, um, what is, how would you describe, or what do you feel like has been uncovered or exposed in the church that, that maybe is actually really important for us to pay attention to maybe, maybe not all a bad thing, but, but, but how would you articulate that? What, what has that been like for you? Yeah, I love that image of kind of uncovering and pulling back. You know, I think one of the observations that I've made about, uh, kind of churches as a whole, um, it's just we do really well when we are in a place of control, in a place of, uh, of prominence, uh, having advantages, cultural advantages. And for so long within Christianity, you know, the church was kind of the, the one central institution that lived at the center of society, that created social connections, that um, often gave people their sense of identity, that was a, a place to land when you moved around. And, and there was a, a natural gravitational pull into churches, primarily meaning Sunday mornings and programs, um, and then, you know, COVID just kind of shut down that attractional pull. There, there was no gravity pulling people into a gathering um, because everyone had to stay away. Uh, and, and I think how we respond to that sort of a change is so significant. You know, I, I, my background is actually not as an artist. I'm surrounded by all these incredibly creative artists and storytellers here. But, I, you know, my background is more of an athlete. And from years of playing sports and even coaching sports, I know that, you know, every great team has that one moment where, whereas Mike Tyson says, you know, you get punched in the mouth. Everyone has a plan to get punched in the mouth and you think, you know, you've, you're a great team. And then all of a sudden someone comes out and, you know, drops 40 on you in football in the first quarter or something, or, you know, or takes a 20 point lead in a halftime and everyone, the players kind of get that look in their face, like what just happened? And the, every coach knows that the most important thing is not that first half, it's how do we respond? What do we do now after we've been stunned? And I think in, in many ways, um, the discomfort that we felt, the challenges that we felt were kind of stunning. 
Uh, I lost 85 people who moved away from my church in my community. That was stunning. We're not a large community. I, I have a friend at a mega church. He says we have a thousand people that we haven't seen re-engage with church. That's kind of stunning. You know, maybe we weren't as compelling at what we were doing. Maybe people are finding it like, I don't know if I need that in my life. I also think all the social realities, I think we were a little stunned by maybe some of the responses from people within our tribes, you know, in the church, uh, a little stunned at how maybe some people responded during the political event. And I think now the challenge is what do we do? You know, how do we respond to to this crisis moment or what I like to think of it again as like an irritant. And so, you know, the, the central um, kind of paradigm or, or metaphor of my book is just this idea that, um, you know, it's it's not the the irritant that causes the problem. It's our response, you know, and, and I use the, the metaphor of a, a grain of sand. Uh, and, you know, coming into a, a person's eye at the beach, a beachgoer walking down, taking a nice stroll, and all of a sudden the wind blows a grain of sand into their eye and that eye becomes an irritant. And in that moment, that irritant causes a natural response of kind of flushing, you know, tearing up, rubbing. And, and the bo human body's primary desire is to eliminate that irritant because of fear that it will lead to an infection, that it will corrupt the organism, so to speak. And so if you don't get rid of it, eventually it, it causes the organism to kind of shut down. And so it's self-protective mechanism says, we have to eliminate irritants in order to get back to normal. On the other end of the spectrum, just you know, a, a quarter mile away, you've got some oyster out there on the bottom of the ocean, where if that same grain of sand had embedded into its soft mantle, instead of trying to flush it out, that oyster, would have taken this irritant and actually embraced it. And what it does is it begins to coat it with this substance called nacre, and it creates layer upon layer of, of coating around the irritant. And we know eventually that that coating becomes a pearl. And so the rather than trying to flush out the irritant, it actually embraces the irritant. It still protects its identity, but by embracing the irritant, it actually creates something of beauty that it can offer the world. And so I think for the church to recognize that more and more in post-Christianity, more and more in secularism, more and more in the world going forward, a world of, of pandemics and, and you know, uh, international crises and things like this, they're going to be more and more irritants. And we are going to have to really think through what's our posture to when we get squeezed, irritated, you know, and, and really, is it a posture that embraces them and creates beauty? Or is it a posture of isolation and separation that's always trying to stop the world from irritating us? Because I think that's going to be impossible. You know, um, one of my old mentors used to say, if you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. If you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. If you squeeze a Christian, you don't know what you're going to get. But whatever you get is what they're filled with. And so I do think this was a, a squeezing moment. And I think for a lot of us, what we recognized was it wasn't really the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the nature of Jesus or the way of Jesus that was coming out. It may have been more Western cultural ideologies or, you know, just ways of the world and ways of the flesh. And so for us to kind of renew that call to return to Jesus, I think is so important. That's awesome. I, I love that. And I, and I think that one of the things that really got, that was super irritating was 
was the reality of attractional church doesn't work anymore. People won't come and they won't even tune in. I mean, at least for in, in my experience, even our declining population watching online has continued to go down and down. And so what does it look like to say, okay, maybe that's not as irritating. Maybe that's almost disruptive and corrective. Maybe that's something that we need to embrace and turn from and, and in some ways allow that to shift us into a more missional mindset. So, so I know that, that you've unpacked that a lot in your book, but can you just talk briefly about some of the paradigms that you have that help you think through what does it look like to shift from being an attractional church where everybody has to come on Sunday, that that's this demand that must happen to sort of being um, a more missional church. And that phrase like gets thrown around all the time. In fact, I have conversations with pastors where um, I'll say, hey, let's let's start gathering together and talk about what does it mean to be more missional? And their response is like, oh, no, we did that last year. We did the missional thing. We had the sermon series. We talked about that already. But I know that you have a viewpoint of what it means to be a missional church that's completely different from a sermon series or like a small group study or anything like that. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about that because I I think it's a game changer in terms of how we lead church as well. So I yeah, I'd love for you to share about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I've had that same experience where I've, I've noticed that there's a trend to just kind of put the word missional in your or, you know, on your on your website or in your mission statement and just kind of assume now that and it's done, Yeah, you're missional, <laughs> you know, or as I remember Brad Briscoe once saying slap a coat of missional paint on the thing and, you know, call the building missional. But, um, you know, for me, the the litmus test for missional is is the posture one that is sending out or inviting in and i'm not that's not all missional is right god has a mission and his mission is the redemption and renewal of all creation through jesus christ i remember mike breen once said that you know mission lives at the intersection of covenant and kingdom so the covenant the reconciliation of a relationship with god and with others so so there's that reconciliation aspect that's part of god's mission that we maybe think of in terms of evangelism or making disciples right getting people to be in a right relationship with jesus right relationship with the other but then the kingdom side is this redemption and renewal of all creation it's the making all the broken things beautiful it's what what will the world look like in the age to come when god's reign is fully declared through jesus christ and so as you think about you know uh disciple making you know we the, the phrase we like to use is making disciples who participate in the redemption and renewal of all creation so that we're combining both of those things that that restoring covenant relationship and engaging people in kingdom work. But all that to say that the best expression of God's mission is the incarnation. It's it's Jesus stepping out of a place of comfort and security and entering into a world of brokenness in order to have a positive impact there. And so, you know, so much of when we think of churches, I think we tend to live in the world of holiness where you know, what we're really trying to do is remain separate or remain pure because the world might stain us. We, we imagine that the world is a contaminant, you know, that if we touch it, it will make us dirty, you know, it, as if we're wearing a white T-shirt. And if we fall into the mud, our T-shirt becomes muddy. Right. That's a negative dominant relationship. But Jesus actually flips that script and says, no, I am the embodiment of holiness. And if I enter into the world, if I participate in this sent mission to redeem and renew all creation, that I can actually make this broken world holy. So the world won't have a negative impact on me. My, my shirt won't become muddy. I can step into the mud and the mud can become shirty. 
right? <laughs> the mud becomes more like the clean shirt rather than the shirt becoming more like the mud. I mean, I, I say that as almost like a ridiculous example because we don't ever think that way. We, right. we know that dirt stains, but Jesus says, actually, I can go into Matthew's house where all the dirty people live and I can bring cleansing. And the Pharisees' minds are blown because they're outside going, no, no, wait a minute. Holiness means, you know, God's purpose in life, what they might have back then even said is God's mission is to stay out here and invite Matthew and his friends to come to us. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The posture of a missionary is that you are sent to where people live and work. And in this case, you know, sent to the dinner table amongst these everyday people to try to bring the redemption and renewal there. And so, you know, the other day I was driving down the street and, and I saw a local church, well-meaning church, doing their best to reach the community, but they had a big sign out and the sign said, you belong here. And I remember thinking like, I, I, I love their heart. They want to create belonging, but the implicit message, the implicit posture of that sign is saying to the world who doesn't go to church or maybe doesn't even follow Jesus, if you come here, you will find belonging. And what I thought would be a better sign is to make smaller signs with the church's logo. And, you know, I mean, imagine it's Ecclesia Hollywood and it said, Ecclesia Hollywood, you belong here. And to go put them all over town at the gym and the pub and the Pilates studio and the golf course and the art gallery so that as Ecclesians went around their day, they kept being reminded, oh, I belong here. I belong out in the world as a redemptive you know, source of good news here. Um, and then as I enter into that space, I seek to create belonging, but I, but I may actually engage the space more as a guest, you know, and, and try to be a learner and, and, and humble and see where I can find belonging in, in ways others are offering. And then maybe I need to create a sense of belonging. But, but to me, it just re it revealed that posture, right? And so the, the way I think about that and the way I articulate this in my book, in my own aha experience in Europe was that the primary disciple making pathway we have in the church has been a Sunday morning worship gathering with professionals and, you know, uh, you know, usually a significant investment of property and then moving people from worship to community and community is usually program driven. It's small groups, life groups, discipleship groups, ABFs, Bible studies, Sunday school, whatever. And then from community, inviting them to participate in mission. But mission often looks more like volunteering to sustain mm -hmm. our existing worship and community ministries, right? It's right. Sunday centric right. or program centric. Maybe it's volunteering with a local organization, but usually we're holding their hand and recruiting them. It's not really equipping and releasing. Right. In post-Christianity, I really believe that that front door of Sunday worship is such a cultural gap for someone who has not experienced yeah a Christian upbringing, that the language, the practices, the liturgies, the rituals, the attire, the world, it's all so different that they're not comfortable entering into a Sunday worship service. And that's what we saw in Europe. You could invite people till the cows come home and no one's coming to church. They don't know what church is. They don't know where you meet. They didn't know there were churches still in, in their city. They thought that was a thing of the past. And they can't possibly imagine a reason why they would want to go to this cultural institution that now has such a bad reputation in their right. city. They like you, but they turn your invite down. And so imagine five years, 10 years from now, that's being true in your city where no one in your community could successfully invite someone to church. 
So close that front door for good and eliminate the worship space as a place to start your disciple making journey. What do you have left? What I realized in, in my own, the churches that I had run was that I didn't have much because the engine of disciple making was professionals, programs and property. And all of those existed primarily on a Sunday morning. And so when you remove that, I didn't know what to do. And so yeah. what I've learned in this kind of new world is we need to flip that pipeline or that pathway and lead with mission to put all of our eggs in the basket of training everyday ordinary Christians to live as missionaries, to be disciple makers out in the everyday spaces of life, to not think in terms of property, to not think in terms of how do I get them to the professionals, but to have the professionals empower and equip people. And so, you know, that's what our journey has been here is, you know, we, have, we, we still have a Sunday service, we still have some community groups, and we know there are still Christians moving to Hollywood to, to succeed in the industry who will join us through that old funnel of Sunday mornings and then a community group. You're not eliminating that. No, we're not eliminating it. Yeah. But we are decreasing the amount of resources we put into it I even as the leader, the, the, you know, the lead resource in terms of a lead pastor, am, I'm teaching less every year, planning less Sundays every year, and putting more and more of that time and energy into creating a pathway that trains and equips everyday people to live as missionaries. How do we send them out into the world and support what they're doing out there? And so, you know, that inverted pipeline, lead with mission, then in those missional spaces, begin to create community through hospitality, through shared meals, through mentoring relationships, and then trust that the spirit is working in people's lives to, to lead them to want to worship Jesus as you engage in the life of Jesus. And then recognize that if they do actually become a worshiper, they may never feel comfortable worshiping in the same context that you feel comfortable in. And so this is where the idea that we may have to plant some new forms of churches that resonate with these people. You know, what would church in a golf course country club look like? What would church look like in, in a community of, of women who are, um, you know, whatever, you know, bunco players? I mean, whatever cultural context you're engaged, I'm giving the most white, suburban, rich, <laughs> horrible. Um, you know, but think of it, you know, you we've got a guy reaching homeless here, you know, and trying to think what would it look like to gather homeless and have uh, moments of communion with God and, uh, you know, feed on God's word together that's not going to be probably in a, an ornate, ornate space. It's going to be somewhere in their own neck of the woods, their own corner of the city. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there and then you can kind of keep going further. But I think that's the first paradigm shift that churches have to get into is stop making it all about bringing people to us and bringing people to our worship communities and instead flip it and say, my primary impulse is to send my people out and to you know participate in the work that God is doing out in the world already. Okay. So here's the problem with that, John, because the reality is, is that as soon as you do that, as soon as you flip the script, all of a sudden, all of your old metrics in terms of what everyone values, appreciates, what a pastor gets accolades for, what a um, church's markers of success are, are gone. Right. So we measure, what is it? That old ad of like, um, nickels and noses or butts yeah. and bucks or whatever the thing is like, that is the number one way that we measure if you're doing your job and if you're being successful. So mm -hmm. if you switch that, then all of a sudden, like, what is it that you measure? How did, did you experience any like resistance in terms of like, no, that's not going to work. This isn't going to happen. Um, 
we just need to try harder to do better Sunday services. And that's, and, and was there a moment where everything started slipping, where instead of it going up into the right, it fell down, <laughs> uh, like attendance fell down. How did you work through that? What was that process like behind, behind the scenes? Oh yeah. I mean, um, to be fair, the current church I lead has been in numerical decline every year since I got here. Um, <laughs> So COVID didn't I love happen. it. I love it. I love it. I just, you know, have a wear it as a t-shirt. You know, my church is going down to the left or whatever. But, um, but what I will say is, you know, I really do believe that, and part of that is the nature of an urban city. And part of that is the nature of, you know, families growing older and moving out and things like that. But also part of it is people selecting out and saying, no, you're not meeting my needs anymore. And or you're not uh, speaking about Jesus and the gospel in this, the cultural context that I'm familiar with. You know, you're dealing with issues of race and justice and human flourishing that make that threaten my understanding of the gospel as being right. hyper individual spiritual salvation. I'm leaving. And we we bless them and say, man, as 100 churches in L.A., you know, I, I'm sure you'll find one. You know, you're not leaving Jesus. You're going to another community. And so. Um, but I do think there's a beautiful kind of condensing, almost the way you make a sauce where you have to boil it down mm-hmm. to this essence, Ooh, like that. you know, and then you start adding back in and you grow it up again, but you got to get that beautiful broth. There's probably a name for that in the cooking world. You know, that's, that's amazing right now if I had it, but, um, a so, glaze, it's a glaze. I think a glaze. it's a glaze. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're getting glazed. We're getting glazed here. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but the, the metric thing is really interesting. And we had a long conversation around this about year three with our leadership. And, you know, metrics are interesting because when you first bring up metrics, a lot of leadership teams react a little bit like they've never thought about measuring spiritual growth or success. And they feel like, oh my gosh, how could you even do that? Right. But then when you remind them that they've actually been doing this in a form for years by measuring butts and bucks and baptisms, you know, like how many people got baptized and did we grow and did we take in more money? Did we give away more money to missions? You know, did it feel fuller? I mean, all those things they have been measuring internally as a way of making them feel like the church is successful. So I say, okay, it's not about measurement. It's about, you know, what we're measuring, you know, what we count counts was the old phrase, you know, that I had heard. And so, you know, one of the things we started talking about was um, the qualitative measurements versus just the quantitative measurements. And so, you know, one of the qualitative measurements was, um, can everyone in our community identify their first, second, and third space where they are engaging as a missionary? So if you're not familiar with that term, you know, that's sociology language for first space is where you live, neighborhood, apartment complex, cul-de-sac, you know, subdivision. Um, second space is where you work. So <laughs> often second and first spaces were the same for the last two years for many of us. Um, but that's, you know, your office, your retail shop, your, the car you drive in, you know, as a cabbie, whatever. And then third space is where you play or create. It's those neutral social spaces, right? So if we want to train every missionary to, to every disciple lives a missionary, you got to be able to identify your missional context. And those are the three primary ones you have. So, hey, tell me about, you know, the neighborhood. Are you a good missionary learns the, the customs and language and culture? So can you tell me about the, the unique part of where you live, the unique part of where you work, unique parts of where you play. And are you embedded there as an insider? You know, do you live as an outsider who doesn't know anybody? Or are you really, did you, have you joined that group and begun to build relationships? And so, you know, that's one of the metrics we talk about, you know, can, can you identify your first, second, and third place? We did a whole series, um, uh, kind of a, a theme where we talked about the idea of making disciples and having, can, can you identify 
one follower of Jesus that you're investing in, so they their life looks more like Jesus, that you're discipling, and then can you identify one person who's not a follower of Jesus that you're investing in, in order to, Lord willing, by, you know, prayerfully that they would come to know Jesus, you know? So um, now for a lot of our community, they said, man, I got three or four of those relationships because those are my kids. And I said, that counts. That's beautiful. That's great. That's exactly what you should be thinking as a parent. I am discipling my kids. Um, but who is that person then outside of your community that you're intentionally praying for? And we like to use the language of not simply evangelizing, but discipling, right? I mean, Jesus was making disciples of those 12 guys for three years, who knows when they really made a full commitment to Jesus as Lord, you know? So he wasn't evangelizing them as much as he was discipling them in the way of Jesus, you know? It wasn't about a conversion. It was more about a character change and a full life surrender. And so, um, so yeah. And then I think the final metric that we've used that I know is really resonating with people is storytelling, you know? So I think one year we had 40 out of 52 Sundays where we cut down on our message, which means I decentered myself in that time. I cut back and I gave that time over from the professional pulpit to the everyday person to share a story of how they were engaging as a missionary. And we celebrated those stories. We championed those stories. We celebrated the dumb things people did that didn't work out as well. You know, that we, we even laughed at the failures so that we all felt a sense of like, hey, we're all trying this together. Um, and I remember, when I realized our culture was tipping was a moment where I had preached my heart out and given this great sermon and thought, man, in my old context, people would be lined up five deep to talk to me about how my, my message had moved them, you know? And of course they were usually like seven year old grandmothers who were just so inspired, you know, cause they thought I was cute and reminded them of their grandkids. But, but then, <laughs> but in this, in this new context, nobody was lining up to talk to me. Yeah. And then I looked to my left and here was my friend, Jeff, who had told a story about living as a missionary, as an acting instructor in simple ways that he was adding value and blessing people and trying to discuss Jesus in, you know, very ordinary everyday ways. And he had a line 70 and I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. It's I, I literally, we've literally put the emphasis away from the professional making disciples onto the ordinary person making disciples. And that's the story that's resonating with people. They want to be more like Jeff, and less like me. And, and as someone who grew up in the evangelical megachurch world, who always wanted to be like the lead pastor and lead teacher, you know, that celebrity leader, I thought this is the future. It's, it's each of us, you know, carrying more influence and in giving influence to kind of ordinary people rather than holding it and hoarding it all as these professionals. I love that. I love that idea of letting go of the measurements of numbers and money and baptisms. Although those are important and those do mean something like it's not devaluing them completely, but it's recognizing that if those are our only measures, then we're missing a key part of the mission of God, which is to go and make disciples. Yeah. Um, it doesn't quite get at that yet. So I love the idea of instead looking towards how many of our people can name their context, how many of our people can name the space to which they were sent. Um, how many of those people in that space have people that they're pouring into that they're actively discipling. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, measuring it by how many stories of missionaries. And there's some key things that have to change. Like when you start to shift that, like one is you've got to let go of a lot of production. It sounds like, because if you're having like non-professionals come up and tell their stories, <laughs> all of a sudden things may get a little bit more messy. Like, is that something you've experienced? Yeah. Uh, two things. One uh, about the metrics, because I like the way you said that about, you don't stop measuring that. The, yeah. uh, the language I use is that 
you know, um, attendance and, and giving, especially those are sustainability metrics. So we, we still oh, have a sustainability okay. dashboard, right? I mean, like we still have, we don't own a space, so we still have rental, you know, we still have commitments to missional partners that we need to invest in. Those are sustainability, but we're trying to put more and more emphasis on the success metrics. So how do we know if That's we're accomplishing our mission, you know? So, um, yeah, so I, I want to say that and then um, hit me with that. Just oh, uh, just like just like stuff really starts to shift because you can't hold on to like uh, this perfect, polished, professional thing when you're also asking everyday missionaries to come uh, and share their stories. Right. Yeah, and yeah. The irony of a church in Hollywood that I recognize when I visited here and that people say to me all the time when they come to, you know, usually see me from, you know, back in Virginia is how unpolished it is. Our community now there are definitely some you know smoke and mirrors and fogs and stuff going on around the city and big theaters and that was our history i mean we were 800 people in one of those theaters on the boulevard creating that show for many years mm. but hopefully we've made a pivot away from that um and so what i find in this new generation especially in hollywood is my people all know what it takes to do that they do that <laughs> they do that you know 40 hours a week i mean <laughs> You know, they literally build sets out of, you know, plywood, tear it down and throw it in the dumpster. They That stuff feels inauthentic. They they know that they could put up a, a smoke machine and create an, an emotional experience as a storyteller. They don't want that in their Sunday spiritual, you know, gathering. What, what they really want is authenticity, genuineness. So, you know, like our, our, our song lyrics slides, they're just white words on black background. There's no cool water behind it or anything. Um, you know, there's just a lot of stripped down in order to try to get back to the essence. I mean, even right now we're, we're meeting outdoors in a tent and, you know, we probably look more like an old revival than we do look like any sort of kind of cool hipster Hollywood church, um, you know, with song sheets in our hands and things like that. And, um, but, but what I found is more and more, I think this generation, especially kind of the under 30 and maybe even under 20 generation, they're looking for authenticity. They're looking for real um they know that you can manipulate and create an emotional experience but they also know the minute they leave that environment they don't have access to that anymore mm -hmm. so what they really want to know is how do i follow jesus seven days a week you know 24 7 out in this world that is putting pressure on me to live the life of jesus and trying to squeeze me into its mold you know if we can have that honest conversation here then maybe i can live it out over there I even love what you represented in that in terms of um, you, it, 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 what you talked about in terms of like, hey, based on where we're at, those sorts of things would be inauthentic. Like those aren't valued in our cultural space. And for me, that represents this uh, this incarnational living and dwelling with the people listening and learning before entering into the space of like, oh, my gosh, you would think that in a place like Hollywood, you'd need big show and big production. You'd need Disney World in order to attract people, but actually it's quite the opposite. And I love the intentionality and the listening that that requires in order to know your people well enough to know what good news would be for them. And yeah. I think that that's, I mean, it, that's really cool. You know, people say like, oh, are you guys a missional church? I say, you know, I, I don't really, I, I, I recognize that I use those phrases sometimes to kind of become quick hooks that I used to be in an attractional church and now I'm in, but really to me, it's, it's contextual church. I mean, you're trying to create an expression of church that fits the context. And so when I was in Brussels, I was doing one thing in Hollywood, I'm doing something else. If I move to 
you know, I don't know, Dubuque, Iowa, I'd, pro- I'd have to assess the context, you know, but I definitely wouldn't come in with church in a box and say, we're doing it this way. You know, yeah. someone in the chat um, asked, what did I mean when I said, you know, down and to the left, you know, I literally used to go to these church in a box conferences at some of these mega churches and they would tell you the way they were doing it. And if you did 40 days of this or six weeks of this or bought this material, you, you know, you could experience the growth that we're experiencing. And that was often defined like a stock chart being up and to the right. You know, have you seen, you know, the Amazon stock in the old days, it was boom, up and to the right. And so that was the idea, kind of Ethereum to the moon is what we would say today, you know. And so my joke was that in many ways, my church growth has been the opposite of that, not up and to the right, kind of down and to the left. I mean, we've been de- decreasing in size. Um, and, and, and yet, I think we're becoming better missionaries. Yes. I think we're becoming more fully formed followers of Jesus. And of those 85 people that moved away, I've stayed in touch with many of them. And I know they're bringing this DNA and this ethos that we send, you know, when people move away now, we bring them up on a Sunday and we say, hey, tell us where you're moving. Tell us, you know, how you think you're going to engage in that neighborhood. What are you going to get involved in? You know, do you know the name of a school? And let's commission you as missionaries to that space. And so we are sending you to St. Paul, Minnesota. We're sending you to Nashville, Tennessee. And we're praying that God's spirit will allow you to live out the life of Jesus and make new disciples. We don't even pray necessarily that you'll find a new church. We pray that you'll go be church for those who may not enter into the walls of church, you know? So again, that's another cultural like language tool that we use to keep saturating this into our minds of like, oh yeah, that's what we're all doing here. I love, there's two things I love. One is the shifting of, it's not about building my church, my particular kingdom church. It's about building the kingdom. So you even said this earlier, whether somebody chooses to go to a different church or they move away, we're not, you're not threatened by that. You're not threatened by the fact that somebody wouldn't want to participate in your particular expression. It's, are we, are we building the kingdom? Like, what does that look like? And I love that. And then the other thing I love is um, how, thinking this way where you have like engagement and mission is the front door and then engagement and community in those spaces. And then maybe they come to worship. Like how have you experienced what you do? I mean, you talked about some of the practices of worship changing. Um, but is, I think you had, can you share a little bit about your paradigm of what happens when people gather to worship and then how you understand or how you describe how people are sent out from that space. Um, and so, and so sort of what that looks like. Yeah, this is, um, I don't think I've actually even said this out in front of my entire community and not that there are any of them are listening, but I know I've said it to my elders and staff, but what I'm basically trying to do now when we plan our Sunday mornings is I'm trying to draw from a, a bunch of liturgical elements or service elements that you could do at home in your own context. I love that. So so we've done, um, Daniel Strickland and Infinitum had this great thing on posture prayer. So I've led people through these posture prayers. Lord, we, you know, we, all that we have is yours and we open our hand, I surrender to you. You know, we, conf- we acknowledge, we, we confess and repent that my posture has been one of judgment and instead I, I create a posture of mission, right? We, we've done that. Um, we have, uh, made communion during Zoom, we made communion very accessible. You could take communion at home on your own. So again, I know that's not everyone's tradition, but for us, it's like, let's empower the average person to know that they can participate in communion as a smaller community without a professional there. Um, you know, in this next series, we're, you know, 
we're trying to do more dialogue-based teaching because I'm teaching on Sermon on the Mount, which is hyper-familiar for a lot of my people who have, you know, grew up in the church in, in the Midwest and South and moved out here. And so rather than give a 45-minute, well-polished seminary level, you know, message that everyone goes, well, that's why I come to church because I can only get that there. I'm trying to scale it down and say, how do I facilitate a dialogue of shared understanding, you know, where I can bring some input, but then we can relate to it and, and, and process it in a, in a group because that's what you could do in your living room, right? So mm -hmm. if, if the Holy Spirit led to a revival in your neighborhood and you had eight people who said, I hate church, but I really want to know more about Jesus. And we all showed up at your house on a Friday night and said, we're in, we're in for six months. We're here to learn about Jesus. Well, guess what? That's a church. And so what are you going to do with those people? Well, right. You know, you're not going to hire a praise team to come in and lead four songs. You know, you're, you're probably, you know, so that's the mentality that I'm trying to have it and kind of keep thinking through simplifying, you know, scalable, reproducible worship practices that people could do in their home. So we've done prayer stations. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then and then I'm always trying to bring in a lot of different voices, too. So people recognize that, oh, I don't have to sound like john or sarah or you know one of the ecclesia pastors who might look like this i might sound more like that person you know right that's so good now i'm sure that it, we probably have people that are listening and their heads spinning and they're thinking about all of these different things that they're going to do in their churches maybe change in their churches um and and sometimes as leaders we we try to lead people where we haven't yet been. Um, so in terms of like for a leader, how, what would you say is the first step to make mission the central organizing principle of your church of your congregation? Yeah, you know, um, I, I had my own apocalyptic or revelation moment on this uh, when I was uh, in Europe with Alan Hirsch, where I was so excited. I was having this moment. I'm going to go to the U.S. I've been in Europe for three years. I'm learning all this. I, I, I met Alan for the first time. And man, I'm going to go and, and I'm going to do a, a, you know, a six month series on, uh, you know, how to engage the mission of God and everything. And, and I basically was kind of asking Alan, you know, what verses in the Bible should I base it on? Because I was so excited. And Alan looked at me and said, if you do that, John, you are going to blow up your church in the first six months and get fired. I was like, whoa, come on, man. You haven't heard me teach. I'm not that bad. You know, like I can pull this off. And he said, now here's the challenge. You're, you don't understand the nature of change within organizations. Mm -hmm. Every organism, every organization has a natural defense mechanism. It has a, a way of identifying threats and repelling them. Just like our body, you know, uh, literally identifies a, a virus or, um, you know, a pathogen and tries to come around it and, and, and then get rid of it. Um, that's what a church will do. It will identify your new idea as a threat to the status quo and people will attack it and try to eliminate it. And if they can't eliminate the idea, they'll eliminate the source of the idea of you. So what you need to do is don't think about showing up on a Sunday morning with your sermon series and dumping innovation across 100% of your community because majority of them are going to react negatively and now you're, now you're in a lot of trouble. Think about diffusing it relationship by relationship from a small community on the edges and then eventually letting it trickle. And so, you know, the, the Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, talks a lot about this. And it's a, a concept by a guy named Everett Rogers in The Diffusion of Innovation that basically says all innovation goes kind of along that standard, what we think of the bell curve that starts with innovators uh, and then early adopters get the innovation and then early adopters signal the early 
uh, majority, late majority. Anyway, you can, I, I lay all this out in my book, but it's funny because I saw it recently with uh, the milk cart challenge. You know what this is, Beth, of course? Yeah, I saw I saw people, I keep seeing them do the yeah. stair-steppy thing, yeah. yeah. So the milk cart challenge is a great example. If, you know, if we had all received a letter in the mail that said, hey, you all need to get online right now and uh, watch the milk cart challenge, we'd all be like, this is the dumbest thing. No, I'm not That's, doing it. Yeah, right? I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. But what happened was you have a group of individuals, I don't know who they are or where they are or why they started it, but the innovators created this idea of building a, a staircase out of milk carts and then challenging people to try to walk over it. And it wobbles and it falls. And because we all have schadenfreude, we like watching people fall on the hard <laughs> plastic milk case, you know, boxes and stuff. So those right. innovators created it. They started sharing it on social media. And then the early adopters started retweeting it. And then some of them even doing it and creating more content, right? And so then I remember the first time someone said, have you seen the milk box challenge? And I went, no, what is it? And this person had relational credibility in my life. So I said, I wanna know from you what this thing is that you think is fascinating. So then he showed it to me and then I showed it to others. That, that, that Those videos, they really diffused through a culture relationship at one relationship at a time, you know? Innovation takes place at the speed of relationship, right? And so, um, Every person who had relational credibility who shared it with someone else, that person bought in. All that to say, these ideas in your church will, will uh, spread much better through relationships and personal credibility than you trying to use your professional credibility. So what I always say is take a small group of six, eight, 10 people who are creative, who are probably wired and, and want to lean into this idea of more of an outward facing missional engagement with the culture and just start training them to live as missionaries. Talk about the paradigms, use the Forge curriculum if you want to, use my book. There's a lot of resources out there, but create a little cohort of activated people who are practitioners, who are gonna start doing something, trying this new way of life. And then you'll begin to create some stories. And I guarantee what will happen is those people will start telling others about what they're doing. And as you then begin to maybe share their stories in a, in a larger setting, you'll find out who then wants to adopt that new way. Um, and the irony of this whole diffusion of innovation is that we think, you know, in order to change organization, you have to get 100% of the people on board. The, the sociology says that once you get to about 16, 17%, you hit a, a tipping point. And so, you know, once you hit that tipping point, it kind of flips and now change becomes inevitable. And so, you know, when the milk cart challenges hit the tipping point, because it was on the nightly news everywhere. It was on the Today Show. It was on, you know, ESPN Sports Center showing these videos. Now it has acquired mass cultural acceptance. Now, of course, the irony is it that will then fade away over right. time, you know, and, and the innovators will be out there kind of creating something new. And so, uh, and that's part of why there are people in your church who are resistant to change because they've seen fads come and go and they get tired of always being the last one to adopt it. And by the time they get on board, it's it's old. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone. And so this idea of kind of missional incarnational living, this is it can't be a model of church. It can't be a, a you know, a six week series. It can't just be a book study. You really have to embed this at the deepest level that we are. We are repenting, we are returning and rethinking everything that we are and, re and going back to the original way of Jesus. 
and trying to reform and reframe our church around Jesus as Lord and what that looks like to, to live out that incarnational missional life in the culture around us. And once they really believe that it's not a fad, that it's not a 40 day series, then they'll begin to slowly take it seriously and look for people around them who are actually engaging in these practices. That's so good. I mean, when you describe that idea of like finding the early adopters, finding the small group, launching it with them, it almost reminds me of like, sort of like planting a church within a church, like planting a kingdom expression of a new way to do church where you're sort of keeping the other plates spinning rather than going and blowing everything up, keeping the other plates spinning. Meanwhile, planting this mustard seed inside of your church that slowly grows into this kingdom expression that then becomes big enough for birds to come and nest in the branches. Right. And like, and like, then it becomes big enough for everybody to be a part of. And I also think it's really helpful to, um, talk about time because I know we've had this conversation before, John, how long does it take to do this? I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I said in my book, I think it was Crawford Ritz who said at seminary one time that you'll overestimate what you can do in one year as a leader and underestimate what you can do in five years. And so the, the challenge is if you have any sort of that apostolic activator, achiever, Enneagram three, let's go do it. You know, you're going to want to dive in and really get after it. And you'll get discouraged by the end of year one that you haven't made enough progress, you know, and I can definitely relate to that. Um, and then, you know, I think I, now at year six, I look around and even when I say to my leadership sometimes, like, I don't know, guys, is it working? Are people really, you know, buying into this? I'll hear these stories from them that I'll be like, oh, wow, if you had told me five years ago that, you know, a guy in our church would be starting a Friday night whiskey club at his office space and guys would be staying around till 11 at night to process their marriage and he would be sharing how Jesus mm-hmm. as the center of his marriage is part of what allows him to stay committed. And then they would say, well, I want to come meet your wife and see what this looks like and hang out in your backyard. And and he would say, oh my gosh, you know, and, and literally this guy's coming to faith. I said, you had told me that story six years. I, would, I, take it. I will take that story, you know? Um, never met that guy. He never set foot in a, in a, a, a professional or property that we owned. We didn't have a program, but a disciple-making person made a new disciple out there. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a long, slow obedience, you know, in this way. And, um, and I think it's one you have to realize that your fruit is often going to grow on other people's trees. Love so it. you're going to, you're going to be planting seeds and you're going to be, you know, pruning and nurturing and all that. And then all of a sudden a fruit's going to pop up and it may not be in your relationship, it may not be someone coming to Christ in your living room. You're going to hear this story over there and you're going to have to learn to celebrate that just as much as you would have if someone had, you know, made that big profession of faith in, in your living room one night. Uh, and that's that's hard. You know, if you got into church because you wanted to be where all the actions at and now in some ways you're helping everyone else experience the action. It's more of a coach than a player role. And so I think that's just another paradigm that that we have to get into. And so, yeah, I would say it's it's not a quick fix. Um, and, you know, there, there may be, you know, it's definitely, we talk a lot about this paradigm, the deconstruction, you know, you're not going to make the quick jump over to, um, you know, the, the perfect new way. You're really going to have to tear some things down and rebuild some things. And that's a longer journey. And I know Forge and other organizations that are kind of helping people through that process. But I, I think it's worth it in the end that I would never go back. I just, you know, as a leader, I just wouldn't go back to that old 
kind of Sunday centric solo heroic leader um, for even as it was, you know, uh, made my heart sore and was pride filling. I just see what it's doing to those leaders and what it's doing to the people. And it's just not worth my marriage and my family. And it's not worth the pain it's causing to people. There might even be a podcast out about it right now, helping people understand that themselves. <laughs> um, I, I, I would even say that in the, in the past five years that our church has been slowly making the transformation to um, be be more missionally minded and focused of, of shifting away from the professional programs and places. And instead to the people of God being sent in that way. Um, my own faith has been renewed in a way that I cannot describe that it, um, like, like even the idea of what things looked like before in, in a, in, in a pre, in a, in a pastoral role that I had before, where it was about attractional church, I would say like my understanding and faith and, um, and reliance on God and scripture and Holy spirit showing up and the realness of that, of getting to see that in everyday people in everyday lives that would never step in foot of the church is just been, it's, it's sustaining for me. It's everything. Absolutely. And that's, what's crazy. Cause often people will push back, you know, Oh, mission, mission. You know, we're really into spiritual formation or we're really into discipleship. And I'm like, okay, these are not mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I just personally believe that the most effective way to form someone spiritually is to engage them in God's work in the world. Right. Because when someone else's spiritual growth is partially dependent on you, you become more fully dependent on God, yeah. right? When someone's stumping you with questions, when someone is looking at your life for an example and you realize, oh man, I'm on display here you cling to Jesus more saying, spirit, fill me, give me wisdom here. Give me a word for this person. Help me to incarnate this better, you know, call me to repentance. So I'm setting a better example for those who want to see what Jesus looks like. That is such a better spiritual formation plan than, you know, Sunday morning, a small group. And I hope I survive this scary world that I'm in, you know what I'm saying? Sunday. So yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I really do think this mission incarnational discipleship is just a more high quality, potent form of walking with Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that there's something that I see changes when the congregation begins living this out every day, that those who do choose to engage in Sunday morning worship come and they don't need a primer song before they're ready to worship. They are so desperate for the word and desperate to enter into the presence of God because they've been on the front lines of the missional world. They've been desperate to hear. They need to know the answers. They want to be um, gathered together because they've been there all week and they've been seeing what God is doing. They've seen the kingdom be um uh, they've participated in the kingdom. It's been around them. And so they're excited about it. And, and so it's, it's, it's an exciting thing. It's a long slog in the same direction of obedience, but it is just a beautiful thing. And I love how well you did um, articulate it in your book. Again, if you guys want to get this book, it looks like this. It's positively irritating. You can go to johnrittner.com.org, mm-hmm. johnrittner.org. Um, to get your um, copy of that book. I highly recommend it. Um, John goes into more details in the book in terms of um, his own experience um, in Brussels, as well as um, transitioning to Hollywood and trying to lead a church and changing that as well as some really practical, helpful things for leaders to make this transition without blowing the whole thing up. So um, definitely recommend it. Thank you for listening to the Forge America Missional Podcast. 
Forge America longs to see the reign of God revealed in the everyday spaces of life. To do this, we partner with local movements to mobilize the people of God to participate in the everyday mission of God. If you'd like to know more about Forge America, feel free to check us out at forgeamerica.com.